0: here we go it's time for the general knowledge podcast season five uh, i believe we're up to episode 19 with this one we are indeed last one we talked about uh the great un land grab that was a good show enjoyed that one talking about the uh, indigenous vote um, the voice of parliament we covered um how basically it's just a big swindle to, to for the un to come and uh, seed all our land over uh, to them and control everything which is what the uh, the idea is that's the open agenda from them um, so that was a great show. I hope everyone enjoyed that one. If you haven't listened to that one yet, head back and listen to that show. Um, today we're going to switch gears. We've got a whole new topic to cover as well. We'll bring our guest into the show very shortly, but Andy's with me for this one. No, Ethan today. He's got some, some shit going down with his roommates or something. He pulled the plug on me this morning. Unfortunately, he's not able to join us for this show, but Andy's with me. We're going to have our guest on today. Andy, how you going, mate? Good to have you. I'm very good. Thank you, General. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful Monday morning here in Brisbane. So um... uh, Public holiday for us. Yeah, it's kind of, well, I'm in the office, General, like, doing the show with you, like, multitasking, yeah, so it's Um, all good, it's all good. Well, make sure you still chime in if you've got any comments or questions for our guests today as well, too, but we'll bring him in now, mate, um, if you're happy to kick off the show. Uh, Mike Williams is with us, researcher, musician, he's... We've got lots of videos up on YouTube. He's done a ton of work over he's quite a quite a few years now, actually. He's been at this. Uh, but Mike joins us all the way from the States. He's um, from around North Carolina area there. Funnily, I was saying before when we were recording, Andy, we've got a few guests coming on from the, the Carolinas and the States there. Seems to be a good part of the country over there. I might, I'd love to get over there one day. It looks awesome too. Uh, but yeah, Mike Williams is joining us and his website is Sage of Quay. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce You don't pronounce it key. I'm pretty sure it's Quay. Yeah, sageofquay.com. Mike Williams, man. Thanks for joining us, buddy. All the way from the States. How are you, mate? Good to have you on.
1: I'm doing well, Lee. And Andy, thank you so much for having me on your show.
0: Awesome, mate. Well, the reason why I got into you is I um, I heard ages ago, like I reckon a couple of years ago, I, had, I listened to a podcast and I couldn't quite remember where it was from, right? So I'm pretty sure it was over at Greg Carlwood's Highside Chats, which is a great show. If you haven't gotten onto that one, you should try and get onto that one as a guest. That's a really good show, that one, actually. But I'm pretty sure he had this lady on talking about the Beatles and Paul McCartney. Was he killed ages ago and replaced and you know the Beatles with this original boy band that was you know they weren't the the story that goes along with it isn't quite what it seems when you actually look into it and you start peeling back the layers now for for ages I was like that was so interesting and you know and I I kind of wanted to get back on I couldn't find anyone else really sort of doing anything on that one and then I stumbled across some of the shows you had done because I was sort of looking up Beatles conspiracies on podcasts and stuff and your name kept coming up as guests on people's shows I mean I need to look into this guy And yeah you've done tons of work on it mate it is fantastic some of the work you've been doing you put a lot of time into this um so today's show folks for the listeners out there we are going to be talking about basically the beatles conspiracy what is the deal with the beatles we're going to talk about paul mccartney there is a good um a theory well i guess we i don't know if we can prove it or not but we'll we'll say it's a theory for now until we'll we'll re-examine that when we get towards the end of the show but um Paul McCartney possibly replaced with someone else to continue the boy band to make sure the money kept rolling in. Um, it's a lot of cool, lot of cool things about this one, um, and we're going to try and change a few people's minds out there. We might um, crush a few, <laughs> a few people uh, the way they always thought about the Beatles. You know, people, people had a lot of love for the Beatles. I so, you know I grew up on the Beatles because of my my parents. They loved the Beatles, always hearing them playing on a Sunday morning or something. You know, Dad would pull out the records and put them on. You know. So we kind of grew up around listening to these the Beatles, and I don't have a problem with the music. To be honest, I, I quite enjoyed the Beatles. I mean, I'm sure you yourself, I, I've, I understand, you're a big Beatles fan from back in the day. Um, so that you yeah, the Beatles are a great band, but not everything's as cracked up as it um, as it appears, though, is it, Mike?
1: No, no. There's a there's uh, two stories with the Beatles. Mm. There's the story that is for public consumption, and then there's the story which I can I call the Beatles conspiracy uh which is very very different than what most people believe
0: Mm. and it has a lot of ties back to things you know um tavistock institute you know like a lot of um public perception management you know controlling how the public sees about political issues um and they use things like uh pop culture bands all this sort of stuff we know that we know that they do that now they've been doing it for a long time just how long well Way back when the Beatles are doing, it, possibly even longer as well, but um, it, it seems to be undeniable that the Beatles were used as this, as as a tool, as almost a, almost a weapon against the people in a sense to control what they what they believe, you know, the public perception. Uh, it, it's so many levels, mate. I just it, it's I'm unbelievable how many levels this is on about the, about the Beatles and and what they really actually were and who was controlling them, the the names behind it all. It's phenomenal. So let's dive into it a bit now. Let's first of all, before we get right into that, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Mike. You're, um, you've got your website. How did you start all this? Mate? How did you get involved in all this sort of stuff and critical thinking and stuff?
1: Well, I spent um, a good portion of my career late in the corporate world. That was over 30 years. And um, I retired back in 2014. Um, I then segued into a completely different career. I was a uh, uh, certified master hypnotherapist and uh, I worked with hundreds and hundreds of people, helped them with various issues, whether it be to quit smoking, uh, release weight, uh, be better at uh, public speaking, confidence and all of that. And Mm -hmm. I retired from my practice in um, September of last year after 12 years of being in practice for the years when I was in. Uh, in practice, it overlapped with my, my corporate career. But going back to 2010, I want to say, I think it's 2010, 2011, that's when I started uh, really getting into alternative research. And I fired up my blog, and that's the Sage of Quay blog. And uh, if you go to my hub website, sageofquay.com, you'll see a link there for the blog. So that blog has been going for a long time over a decade. And um, then also in 2014, I started doing podcasting like you guys are doing. And I did that for a number of years. And then in 20, uh, I guess it was 2016, I read a book. The book is this book here. I have nothing to do with the book, by the way. I just happened to read it. It's The Memoirs of Billy Shears. And the author is Thomas U. Harriet. And I had known about the uh, Paul is Dead conspiracy for a long time when I was in high school. um, I knew all about it. I graduated in 1977. I'm going to be 65 years old uh, in January. You
0: look good for 65, brother.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. I always say I think it's my wife's cooking.
0: (laughs) You're nice. Yes, good, good wife.
1: (laughs) So um, um, I got into the book. And uh, I knew about the conspiracy because when I was back in high school, I actually put together a little uh, lecture it, our high school back in the day was a bit progressive. And we were able to bring in guest speakers to talk about certain topics, I mean, how to be approved and all that stuff. So I I had submitted, hey, I wanted to bring my friend Adam's brother in, Doug, who was about four or five years older than us, to talk about the Beatle um, clues, the Paul is dead clues on the Beatle albums and all the back masking and all that stuff and so i put this little thing together and i didn't expect a lot of people to show up um and i was putting flyers in the hallway and all that stuff and then when it was showtime it was standing room only in the classroom that they had set aside for for doug to to do his pitch and so i knew about it but back in the day i thought it was uh essentially it was a, a marketing gimmick and we were, we were always told that the Beatles were very clever and ve- uh, very witty. And so I thought, okay, so this is a clever, witty way to interact with the fans, sell more records, and stuff like that. And then in 2016, I read the book that I just showed you, The Memoirs of Billy Shears. And mm-hmm. as I was reading it, I was thinking to myself, well, what's going on here? I mean, th- there was so much detail in the book, Lee and Andy, that logically you had to step back and think to yourself, okay, only somebody who is either the person playing the part, or is very much in the inner circle, would know this much detail.
0: Yeah, this. Now the memoirs of Billy Shears. That's it, it, it's technically what they call. It's a fiction novel, though, right? That's what they classify it. Yeah? Historical fiction. Historical fiction, right? So yeah. made up fiction, basically, is what they're saying. You know, um, but this this character seems it's too plausible, isn't it? It's almost it's it's almost like they're telling us. What really happened without telling us what really happened? Like the, it seems to be the way they they want to do things. It's that that um, law of karma, you know. They've got to tell us what they're doing to us in some way um, before they or while they do it or whatever, you know, so that the karma is it's back on us, sort of thing, you know.
1: Yeah. So historical fiction is interesting because it's fiction, technically fiction, but it's within a historical context. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, so it is. Um, revelation of the method so the person that's playing the the one revelation of the
0: method yeah
1: yeah so the person playing the part of paul mccartney since 1966 the person that has the permanent contract paul mccartney died back the book tells us back in september september 11th of 1966 some researchers think it's august some people think it's november but the book says september 11th 1966 and that's the date i go with because and we'll get into this some more, but it's the Beatles key
0: date, are yeah, key date. the
1: Beatles are immersed in the occult. That's that's something that probably a lot of people don't know. And uh, if you go to my website, if you go to my Paul is Dead channel, I go into a lot of detail about all of the occultism around the Beatles. So what I did, Lee and Andy was, uh, I read the book, and um, I was telling Sophia Smallstorm, I don't know if you know Sophia, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sophia and I are good friends, and I was telling, her, I was reading this crazy book, and I was telling her a little bit about it, and she said hey, Mike, you know, you should come on my podcast and talk about it. And I didn't want to do it. Um, first of all, I didn't think anybody was going to be that interested in it. And the other thing is the book is 666 pages. There's the 666, OK? <laughs> and um, so wow. I, thought to my, I thought to myself, how am I going to boil down 666 pages into a two-hour presentation? How, how is that, you know, going to get done? But... Um, I kept putting it off, hoping that Sophia wouldn't bring it up again, and then, you know, periodically she would say, hey, are you going to come on the show and talk about this Beatle thing? So finally I agreed. I sat down. I did boil down the 666 pages into a uh, PowerPoint presentation, and um, I I did that uh, presentation and that discussion with Sophia back in September of 2016. And at the time, I thought it was going to be the only show I was going to do on it. Mark Devlin contacted me after that. And uh, Mark asked if I would come on his show. And I said, okay, I would do a show with Mark. Uh, Mark's a friend of mine. And uh, I think in that show, if I'm not mistaken, I think I said that this was the last show I was going to do on this. (laughs) and i think that was too interesting how
0: can you not do more shows it's too interesting (laughs) well you know it was interesting what happened was
1: lee is that i just didn't know how interesting it was going to get was it just about the replacement of paul mccartney as i dug more into the claims in the book because what i was doing was i wasn't taking the book at face value i was doing the research to either uh prove or disprove what the book was putting forth And as I was progressing, I was finding that a vast majority of the book is truthful. And the way to explain the book is, uh, it's, it's like a big puzzle. And it's a book that is, it's a Masonic book. And the pieces of the puzzle are put out there, and it leaves it to the intrepid to to pursue and follow certain clues and certain leads, follow the breadcrumbs to take you someplace. The book actually um, looks to have you go outside of it to validate information, and that's actually w- what I did when I I did my big presentation on whether they wrote all the wrong music or not. I guess we'll get into that in a, at some we will, point yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so it's a very interesting book. Um, there are threads of fiction. There's no doubt about it. I've I've said this from day one, I said, but, uh, the book is in layers. So it has four layers to it. Uh, the first layer is you just read the book as it is, like you would read any book and then, you know, that's that. Yep. Second layer is, uh, there are bolded out, uh, words on each page and those bolded out words, then, um, establish a second layer and a deeper dive into the story. Then there's a third layer that's called the acrostical code. And every, the first letter of every odd number sentence, the very first letter, when you read down, you read, um, vertically forms more sentences. So that's the third layer. And now you're getting even deeper into, uh, what the story is all about. And then, um, The fourth layer is a uh, a new set of information that the author, uh, Tom U. Harriet, has put out. They're called the Whisper Messages. And uh, these are very faint messages in very faint font that tells additional, or puts forth, I should say, additional information. Wow. So it's it's, it's a very complex book. Um, You know, there's people out there, um, some of them are researchers and they want to call the book, fiction and and they just want to chalk it up. And, you know, but the problem is with with doing that is what I have found is the vast majority of those folks that make that statement have never read the book. So I don't understand how you can pass judgment on something or or editorialize on something that yeah. you're not familiar with. I just don't understand that whole premise. But what happens a lot of times is you know there have been other researchers or there are other researchers that are in the game and they've been around longer than i have i've been doing this for uh, over 7 years now and so they establish a certain you know a certain premise that they they hold on to it that's their premise and what's happened is the book has broken down some of these premises that s- some folks have held on to for dear life and that's caused you know that's caused issues within the Paul is dead community because um, Just when you think that you have it nailed down, the book comes out and says, well, maybe you don't, maybe Mm -hmm. there's more to the story, you know? So anyway, the reason why I bring that up is because, uh, the other thing I should mention is it's not harmonious within the community. You know, there's, there's, uh, this. it's not, I mean, it can get a bit nasty and ugly. Um,
0: so different you know, opinions just, and people are coming at you going, no, that's wrong. That was wrong about this. And
1: yeah, oh, I yeah, agree with that.
0: It, yeah, it's spot on. That sort of thing. Yeah. OK.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so what they want to do is they go into attack mode because, you know, you're, you're not singing out of their hymnal. Hmm. You know, a lot of what a lot of researchers like to do in this topic with Paul is dead is they want to start with Paul was replaced and then they want to move forward from there. They don't want to talk about the creation of the beatles they still want to believe that the beatles were this organic naturally talented you know paul mccartney and john lennon genius songwriters they want to hold on to that they don't want to yeah. let it go and
0: yeah, it's so like what i fantasy. Do- they they have this this cinderella story don't they that they they just want to hold on to you know it otherwise it seems to it, it tears down all their sort of preconceived notions that you know that these men were just this wonderful thing you know and but really it wasn't. People don't like to be to have that thought that they were lied to. What was it um, Mark Twain famously said? You know, uh, it's easier to fool someone than it is to convince them that they've been fooled. You know what I mean? Right. People don't want to think that they've been fooled. And yet here they are. They've been fooling us for a long time. Because, and it's provable. I like, we, we, Let's start getting into that a bit now about the Beatles and and how they came to be. And then we'll get into how some of the impossibilities come into it as well. You know, because they were the original boy band, let's face it, you know, like nowadays, you know, there's freaking TV shows about, you know, creating boy bands, you know what I mean? Like, it's right in our faces, whereas back then, it it wasn't, it wasn't in your face, it was all hidden, it was controlled, it was, you know, we need to produce these guys, we've got to control this, you know, the narrative was all about the narrative, you know, back then. Nowadays, it's like, you know, it's it's just mindless entertainment for people to have a production of a, a boy band produced in their faces and pumping this, this shit right at them. Whereas back then, it wasn't that way. You know, it's kind of switched a bit. But the way I see it is they were the original creation boy band, weren't they?
1: Yes, they were. And they were a creation of Tavistock. And uh, Tavistock, for those uh, folks that don't know, uh, part of the deep state is an entire internationalist structure that's in place. And uh, Tavistock is in the business of mind control and propaganda, working with, uh, you know, working with the CIA, working with intelligence uh, across the world, especially when we're talking about Western intelligence. Um, These are all other groups that are tied in or, um, you know, Davos, we could say the world economic forum, uh, the Bilderbergs, the Trilaterals, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Club of Rome. This is the international structure that is in place. And Tavistock, um, who, by the way, is basically bolted to uh, the Rockefellers, um, has a huge, huge part in culture creation and social engineering. And I hope you don't mind me showing you some, showing some books
0: Go for it. I'm just going to quickly screen share this so people can sort yeah. of see it while you're doing that.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, okay. yeah, I highly recommend um, this book here. It's a great primer. Uh, let me just it's switch uh, back so. Yeah. All
2: right. Okay. Yep, go for it.
1: So I recommend this book here. It's a great primer. Tavistock Institute by Daniel Estulin, Social Engineering, The Masses. Okay. It's a very good book to start with. Also, this book here published, I think, first, uh, initially in 1993 by John, Dr. John Coleman. It's about the Committee right. of 300. And um, Tavistock reports in under the Committee of 300. So if you start with those two, bo- two books, uh, Coleman actually, the book is not about the Beatles, but he has a number of uh, uh, pages in the book that talks to Stav- Tavistock's creation of the band. So the reason why the Beatles were created was because um, they wanted to change the culture. So there needs to be a a gigantic social engineering initiative. And what I have explained to my audience is that the music and entertainment industry is a gigantic lever in the toolbox of the controllers. Mm -hmm. And all of the genres of music that that have come about over the last 60 years or so, All of this has come through Tavistock, all of this. And um, so the Beatles were creation and they were created in order to break down traditional values, uh, to detach from institutionalized religion. In particular, they wanted a break from Christianity because Christianity was the predominant religion, especially here in the United States and, and across the world. So it was a process of, of taking traditional values, taking institutionalized religion, breaking down the, uh, the morals, the ethics uh, at the time, uh, and bring about a new age. It's what uh, Alistair Crowley refers to as the Aeon of Horus, so and the Beatles are very much tied into Alistair Crowley and his religion of thelema, And... And there you go.
0: Yeah, just showing some stuff there in the background yeah, while yeah. you while you're talking. Yep. Yeah, but um a lot of this does go back to um, alistair Crowley, doesn't it? And this this religion yes. of you know do do what thou wilt or whatever it was, you know. Um, we've yes. seen that come up a lot, actually.
1: Yeah, so Crowley is is an important uh, player in all of this. You know, some people think he was nothing more than a carnival barker, but he was not. Um, in fact, his religion of thelema which is Luciferianism, is the prevailing religious and spiritual philosophy of those that reside within the pyramid of power. In fact, that chart right there that you're showing, Lee, that is uh, John Coleman's chart where, that's his org chart, and he shows who goes where, and we can see Tavistock to the bottom left, up through the committee. 300 and to the right the club of rome which is responsible for all of the uh, environmental agendas and psychological operations and so on and yeah. attached to that you know stanford research institute and so on yeah
0: so, yeah, MK anyway, Ultra, yeah yep. all that stuff yeah
1: all of that stuff and um so crowley's very important because crowley back in the early 1900s um he uh, said that there was going to be a new eon a new age And we were going to move to what he referred referred to as the Aeon of Horus, which we know as the Age of Aquarius. And he referred to the current age or the Age of Pisces or the Aeon of Osiris as a period of time, an age where humanity is shackled, they're not free, and uh, they are not following their pure or true will. And he had said that this was all going to change with the Eon of Horus or the Age of Aquarius, the problem with uh, I have with um, with what Crowley uh, said is that when people hear this, they think, "Well, that's a good thing, Mike." I mean, wh- why are you so hung up on that? It's because Crowley was part of the elite circle, and when he's talking about a new age and um, all of these good things that are going to come. He was talking to his elite friends. In fact, he wrote a paper called book seventy seven and in book seventy seven he goes through a litany of of uh, I want to call them um, rules uh, that uh, somebody would would do in order to pursue their will. Uh, and at the very end of book seventy seven, He says that uh, anybody who gets in our way, anybody gets in the way of you pursuing your will, you have a right to kill them. I'm serious. And this is what it says. And then he goes on to say that everybody else, in other words, anybody who is not an initiate, anybody who is not in the club will be our slaves. And this is what it says in book 77. And so um, a lot of
0: people, a lot of the elite subscribe to this thinking, too. Like They're they're on board with this stuff, aren't they?
1: Yes, absolutely. So in other words, what's going on today uh, is they are imposing their will upon us. So they're imposing their pure, true will. So this 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 would be the tenets of of Alistair Crowley. Of Philema. And uh, so it's a battle of will. And that's what we're going through right now, along with mm. I, I always tell my audience too, Lee, that um, the controllers are occultists. Make no mistake about this.
0: Big time. They are occultists,
1: yeah. big time occultists. And so when they go about change, um, their process is alchemical in nature. So there are, are alchemical stages that. That we're being put through. In order for them to break down the old structures, in order for them to bring in their their new age.
0: Yeah, out with the old, in with the new. That's that's sort of their motto, isn't it? They want to tear down these old structures of, like you were saying before, Christianity and the way that um, humanity has been sort of running in the background for for quite a while. You know, with um, the whole you know story of Jesus and the Bible and God and all that sort of stuff. They want to get rid of that. They don't like that anymore. Yes. That's, that's not the way they want to run things. So, so they have to get rid of it, they have to tear it down. We see this look look at look at what any army that does when they invade another country. They start tearing down monuments and statues and destroying churches and you know, all this sort of stuff. They they, they have to tear down their belief systems in order to impose the new ones. You know, we see well, this that's what the, the Roman
1: church did when they they built their churches on the sites of pagan yep. worshipping. Um, they're, they're, places of worship, they're churches and, and, and mm. sacred ground. Um, so the whole thing here, uh, you know, why am I going through the whole Crowley bit is because, uh, the Beatles, uh, are completely tied into the whole, um, the whole philosophy of the Lima and of Crowley and the Beatles are, and, uh, I say are because they're still very much front and center, um, in, in our culture. You know, they I, I refer to them as the Pied Pipers of the Aeon of Horus. And is, is this they,
0: evident through through their music or through their imagery and album covers? Like what, what leads you to this conclusion?
1: Well, if you, if what you do is you put a stake in the ground. The stake in the ground that I have is 1960. So if we go back to 1960 and we take a look at what was going on um, in society, in our cultures, it was very traditional. And then, uh, you know, we had Elvis and uh, and some of the acts going back into the 1950s. I refer to that as table setting for the Beatles. But when the Beatles came on board, that was uh, that was to change the mindset of the young people. They didn't care about the older people. In fact, what they wanted, and, and Dr. Coleman addresses this in his book, they wanted the conflict between the adults, the, the mother, father, uh of the family with their and children, the they yeah. wanted right, they wanted that stress, they wanted that to fracture the relationship and the have bond. the kids break that's away. Right. The kids break away from it, and that's what happened with the Beatles' music. And uh, you know, so we we got familiar with them here in the United States in 1964, but they released their first UK album, Please Please Me, back in March of 1963, mm-hmm. um, and then of course. We have uh, the release of Sgt. Pepper on June 1st of 1967, and th- this kicks off the psychedelic era, mm.
0: uh,
1: the summer of love. And so, so the Beatles, the way the Beatles were put together and the trajectory that Tavistock put them on and EMI, their record label, because EMI and Tavistock were bolted at the hip, Right. Yep. Uh, the, the way they did this was to start very basic. And so, you know, the Beatles first came out with their music on Please Please Me and with the Beatles. It just seemed like, well, you know, it's not that bad. It's rock and roll music. And, they, you know, they're interesting with their mop tops and all of that stuff. Uh, but then what we started to see is a progression where the music would change. And so by the time we hit like Help and Revolver, we're getting into a different style of music, especially with Revolver, which became more Dylan-esque. Revolver was the the segue to uh, to the psychedelic era. It was the bridge between Rubber Soul. Um, I think I said Revolver. I meant Rubber Soul was more Dylan esque.
0: You did say Revolver, yeah,
1: yeah. Rubber Soul. So yeah. Re, Re, yeah, so Revolver was the bridge between Rubber Soul going into into Sergeant Pepper. So once we got to Sgt. Pepper, that's when the psychedelic era kicked off, and that's when we were talking about you know drug use, um, free sex, you know. Um, Doest thou wilt. If it feels good, do it. Right. We we remember that tagline. If it feels good, do it. That is doest thou that wilt. That goes back to mm-hmm. Crowley. It's the mm-hmm. same thing with Nike's tagline, just do it. It's the same thing. So we see yep. this all the time, and um, so it's a it's a break from, you know, from the traditional uh, societal and cultural structures that we, you know, we had in place. And, you know, the Beatles changed everything, they changed hairstyle, they changed the way uh, people dressed, uh, they, tra- they, they changed even the way, you know, people spoke. Um, and when you think about it, how many young people decided that they were going to go pick up a guitar, play drums, and, you know, become a rock band, because they wanted to be like the Beatles. Mm. And um, so the whole rock music scene, like I said, all of the genres that are out there, that currently and all of the ones in the past all created by tavistock and the reason why tavistock has different genres is because they know that each genre of music has a certain shelf life and then there's a new generation or a new audience that they're going to um that they're going to manipulate and social engineer so then they move to you know the next genre they could you know
0: yeah
1: yeah you know if punk music we have
0: Rap, metal all we all have uh, yeah.
1: glam uh all of that stuff Yeah. So uh, it was, you know, um, in the 1970s, we moved more toward like with Kiss, which had more satanic overtones. Yeah. Big time. Right. And just so people know, folks, I'm not a prude. Okay, so I'm a musician and I got into music because (laughs) of the Beatles. And I, you know, for, the, I, for I, those
0: listening, uh, Mike's got guitars hanging up in the background and all this sort of stuff. So he's <laughs> he's a muser. He's got amps there. I can see Mike's, yeah. So just for the yeah, folks who yeah, are watching mean, I, the video was, version of this, yeah.
1: <laughs> I was into it. So when I would, and I'm talking about how people were doing things differently, I was one of those people. So my mindset was mm. changed. My mindset was very different than my parents, you know. But you're thinking, well, it's just a new generation, and that's how it goes. Mm. But the Beatles really were foundational to everything else that that followed them. So some people might say, well, you know, there's music today and I don't see the ties back to the Beatles. I, you know, I don't see that. So I don't understand how it could be foundational. But what you do get is when they have these artists, when they have them on interviews and they're talking to them many, many times, there's a mention going back to the Beatles, going back to Paul McCartney. So they're making the tie that way. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a a replication of the music, or they're going to sound like the Beatles. Like it's this connection, right? They're paying homage exactly mm-hmm. to the Beatles, you know, because the Beatles are that foundation that everything else was was built upon.
0: So let's talk about. Um, so we've got the Beatles. They've you know they're they're now a creation of Tavistock um let's just talk a little bit about how they started and then how they how they then got into creating When i say creating inverted commas albums apparently writing all this music churning out multiple albums in a year you know doing um uh, i think it was was it rubber soul that had that was created within like two weeks or something apparently like there's was there another days. one I can't remember if it, was, it was 30 days there you go so th- an album punched out in within 30 days Back then, you know, now now it's probably possible in a sense here with the way we can do things with technology and stuff. Back then, that wasn't possible. But we'll get into that. Let's just take take us a little bit through now of how the Beatles came to be, where they came from, and how they got manipulated into being this new, new boy band and all this sort of stuff.
1: Okay, so I'll start with uh, August of 1960. That's when the Beatles arrive in Hamburg, Germany. Right. That's and when they got
0: their start, wasn't it? It wasn't in England. They actually kicked off in Germany, of all places.
1: Well, Germany is where they spent a lot of time um, looking to establish their performance skills. Not their songwriting skills, because we're going to get into that, their performance skills.
0: Okay.
1: Okay, so before that… They couldn't do that
0: in England? I found that… Sorry, I just interrupted you there. I found that odd that they didn't want to cut their teeth in England, but they they did this in another country. Was that on purpose, do you think, that they made them do this?
1: They weren't exposed
0: to ridicule, maybe, or… What I have read
1: is that Tavistock has a lot of ties back to Germany. Right. Okay. Okay. So, and um, I mean, we can get into that with another show, but um, they were doing shows back home, back in Liverpool. Okay. But you know, they, 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 and at that time, it was Pete Best that was scheduling their shows. He was getting them the the gigs.
0: The the original drummer, correct?
1: The original drummer was Pete Best, right? So, um, I mean, his mother, Mona Best had the Casbah Club and that was in their house in the basement and they were doing, doing some gigs there when they were called the Quarrymen. uh, an interesting note is that, uh, Pete Best's mother, Mona, had an affair with Neil Aspinall who was half her age and Neil Aspinall was tied to the Beatles and he later on became the, the top executive for Apple Records and, uh, they wound up having a child, uh, and that, that, you know, a boy, his name is Rogue. Okay. Right. Okay. <laughs> so it's kind of like, it's all in the family type of thing. Mm, so what happens, what happens yeah. is, uh, when they, so they're
0: in Germany. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they go to Germany. Now they have a different manager. Now they have Alan Williams. Alan Williams picks them up. And, uh, you know, I, I consider Alan, Alan Williams really their, their first real serious handler. So he tries to book them into, uh, to Germany and, uh, they're known as a bum group in Germany and really nobody wants to touch them but they get there in august of 1960 and um it doesn't go well and because at that time you know john lennon was 20 uh paul was 18 george was 17 they're just young guys you know and uh they were doing a lot of drinking uh there's a, a you know a lot of uh uh spending a lot of time with with the ladies and so on um they were um the gigs that they got, they wound up uh, uh, sleeping in an old cinema, an old rundown cinema, and that's you know. So it was it was just the, the conditions were deplorable. So mm. by the time they got to December of 1960, they had accomplished really nothing in uh, in Germany, really nothing. So in, in a book, um, uh, it's called The Lenin Prophecy by Joseph Niesgode. It's a very good book. I recommend. Uh, Uh, folks read it, he says that um, Paul and John, you know, came back from that Germany stint in 1960 very dejected because, you know, nothing really materialized. So then what happens is um, they are put on really a conveyor belt to continue to perform, not only locally within Liverpool but also taking their, um, their their stints back to Germany and when they went to Germany they were there for like you know for a number of weeks And in an interview that Pete best did a number of years ago he said that um, the the stints in in Germany they would play for seven or eight hours a night. Wow wow yeah. that's huge yeah it's huge so then you know then whatever time they left uh, the club they would, go back to sleep or whatever and uh, he said that they got up around 3 p.m in the afternoon and then they had to be back at the club by six o'clock so they wow. had a three hour they had a three hour window there so this is when we get into the whole bit about people saying that the Beatles were writing, all of this music they were writing music back in hamburg they weren't writing music back in <laughs> yeah <Hamburg>. when? <laughs> when exactly when? When? <laughs> by the time you rolled out of bed at three o'clock in the afternoon and you've got to be back at the club at six o'clock you're not writing music what and the Beatles were doing they, times
0: too yeah. exactly
1: exactly they were playing the Beatles were playing uh copy music cover music that's what they were they were a cover band and you know playing uh, bars and clubs so um and then Their official narrative says, going back to the complete Beatles, which was a documentary released back in the 1980s, it tells us that the Beatles, John Lennon and Paul McCartney specifically, between them, between 1956 and 1962, they wrote 100 songs between them. But we never see the 100 songs. They never materialize. The documentary says they wrote them, but they were never recorded, which is very convenient, right? Mm, I wrote 100 mm. songs, but they weren't recorded. So from 1961 to 1962, I mean, they're doing their gigs uh, back, you know, locally in Liverpool, um, within Germany, and then on January 1st of 1962, they wind up with a uh, a um, going to Decca to do a demo, Decca Records. And at this point now, um, you know, they're they're connected into Brian Epstein. Who's their
0: new manager, is it? New or manager, he's right.
1: So right. Manager. He's, the, he's their new manager, right? So Brian Epstein was managing them at this point. So I'm just trying to get through this so that I don't bog the whole show down with this. No, you're right. Yeah,
0: you fly through So it. So
1: what happens is um, they, they go to DECA. They do uh, 15 songs and 12 of the 15 songs are cover tunes. And they do three songs which are nondescript originals that never made it onto any of their released UK albums. In fact, I, th- I think I have it here. Um, they did three songs. It was Like is Do, Hello Little Girl, Love of the Loved, and Love of the Loved finally was released on Anthology One. So the point I'm trying to make here for the audience, folks, is that the official narrative tells us that between you know, 1956 and 1962, John Lennon and Paul McCartney wrote 100 songs between them. Yet when they go to DECA, they can muster up only three <laughs> nondescript <laughs> originals that most Beatle fans don't know. And every other song on that demo, the 12 others, was, were cover songs. So then, what happens is, um, you know, they've got this Decca recording. Decca turns them down. Decca says, "Yeah, no, uh, we're not interested." Brian Epstein takes tapes to uh, to George Martin, who is the with EMI. George Martin was the head of uh, the Parlophone label, uh, which comes in under the the EMI label. Uh, and when George Martin first hears the the tapes, he tells Brian Epstein, "I'm sorry, but from what I'm hearing," I'm not going to sign them either. And in interviews that George Martin has done, and I have these interviews and they're in my shows, he said that uh, he didn't think they had anything behind them. Um, They weren't showing any signs of being songwriters. He said that he thought this music was rubbish. These were his words. Mm, And so So George Martin turns him down. And um, then what the book tells us is George Martin receives a phone call from upstairs, from whom we don't know, and said, hey, look, you got to take them on. And so George Martin then is told to take the Beatles on board. They signed a contract in June of 1962. So think about this. Here's a band that started in August of 1960. They had nothing behind them. Their musical skills were marginal at best. They, they weren't writing music. And then from August of 1960 to June of 1962, two years later, they have a major record contract with a major record label, EMI, under the tutelage of a major producer, George Martin. So you have to ask yourself, how did that happen? Is, is, does that seem like an organic flow? Of things, no, no it's uh-huh. not organic at all, right? So he was told to take them on, and um, so what happens is George Martin, when he takes them on, he he doesn't he doesn't work with them initially. He he assigns it to um, an assistant producer, Ron Richards, who later on went to go work with the Hollies. So Ron's working with them, and he's not having a lot of luck because they're not very good in the studio. Um, it's a chore. In fact, there was uh, an interview that, um, going back to 1971, and um, let me just take a look if I can find it here real quick. Uh, so in the, in this interview, it was with their engineer at the time, and he said that they were, they, they were a failure in the studio, and he said they had a lot of difficulty uh, getting "Love Me Do" down. Wow. Okay, so so what, so what we have is you know we have this we have this this thread between George Martin and and other sources, which are saying that hey look you know musically they weren't there, okay, songwriting wise they weren't there. In fact, George Martin said that when he first got them on board, his first task was to go out and find songs, original songs that they could play. So he was he was going out looking for songs for them to go record, to go put on an album. Yep. In August and September of 1962, when they replaced uh, uh, Pete Best with Ringo Starr, uh, there was a, uh, a local trade paper. Uh, the Mercy Beat. And it was about the music scene going back in the day. And in that article, along with announcing that Ringo Starr was replacing Pete Best, that article said that the Beatles are flying to London to record songs that were written for them and given to them by their record manager, meaning their producer, George Martin. So, you know, we have all of these, you know, we have all of these... Um,
0: little little bit, tidbits of information that proves that it doesn't really add up to the to the to the story, does it? It it, the, it doesn't. The, the add Cinderella up. story of these four working class heroes that have come along. Oh, they're great songwriters, written oh a hundred songs, and we've performed all over the place. But everyone that's coming in, and into contact with them, from what I'm hearing from you, is saying subpar, can't write, can't play, you know, sound terrible. Right. Um, and yet here they are, they're up on this platform because. Someone said to take them on. Someone higher up said, you got to get these guys on board. So there's definitely a plan for them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's there's a plan. So and that then you have to ask yourself, well, how do they wind up on the radar? So one of the things that I have suggested is that the Beatles, in particular, uh, John Lennon and Paul McCarty. But I'm I'm sure that, you know, George Harrison and Ringo Starr, probably in the same boat, um, were in some kind of program. When they were younger, going back to maybe when they were in their early teens, maybe even before that, maybe preteen. And the reason why I say that, Lee and Andy, is because if you look uh, for images on the internet, do a search on Paul McCartney, birdcage, George Harrison, birdcage. And what you're going to see is there's Birdcage symbolism. Now, the birdcage is Illuminati symbolism for mind control. And in, in fact, I did a video. It's it's called um, the Occult and the Beatles in three minutes. It's a three minute video where I inserted all of these images that I had. Yeah. See, top right. Mm. To the left. Okay. There's tons and tons. Of occult imagery around the Beatles, we could see one-eyed symbolism. Yeah, the sigil of Satan, which is the uh, the, the double um, peace sign, which Ringo does all the time. So, so this is yeah. You know, so that's how I believe they got on the radar. They were positioned, and they were handled and brought along.
2: Yep, so right then, on.
1: you know, so so then what happens is, you know, um, so George Martin gets them. He doesn't doesn't see anything, really. I mean, he's saying he thought their music was rubbish. They didn't have anything behind them. The best song that they had, you know, I use quotes around that uh, was Love Me Do. And then they released their first UK album, Please Please Me, in March of uh, 1963, March 22nd, by the way. Three, two, two is the Skull and Bones number.
0: Yeah, and well, that's, that's, all, the, that's the corona rose number two three two two yep yeah, and um, then
1: all of a sudden hmm. all of a sudden lee they've got eight original songs on the on the first album along with six cover tunes so how did they go from having <laughs> no no music to being able to To have eight original tunes on their first album. I mean, they they showed there was there was no evidence that they were capable of doing this. In fact, the evidence that I I have put forth many times in in my presentations shows that they 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 didn't have it. Mm. They weren't songwriters. And and the way I, I position it is that Tavistock didn't need songwriters because Tavistock had songwriters. What Tavistock needed was performers, they needed a band that could front the music and put them out on the world stage, yep. send them out and go do the tours, go do the concerts. And so what happened was at EMI with through George Martin, and I believe Theodore Adorno was tied into the whole uh, psychological operation as well. I think Adorno and, and, and George Martin were connected at the hip. George Martin, I'm positive of. But, you know, if you do enough work, you look at the Frankfurt School in Tavistock, you can tie Adorno into this. And in fact, in the book, The Committee of 300, Dr. John Coleman ties Adorno back to the Beatles. Mm -hmm. So the Beatles were the Beatles were taught music. They were brought into the studio and they were taught how to play certain songs and they would rehearse those songs. And these are the songs that they took out on the road. And. um, and people want to argue with me, they'll say, well, hey, look, you know, we have recordings, we have audio of them on YouTube. We can listen to them. So, you know, so if we have that, you know, how could it be that they weren't in the studio working these songs? And what I try to explain to folks is audio without authenticated, genuine film footage to corroborate what's going on in the studio means
0: nothing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's just audio. And, mm. and what people have to, you know, that what, they, what escapes them is when you have a major psychological operation, there's going to be all kinds of manipulation that's going to take place. As an example, I pose this question to folks. How do you know what you're hearing on that audio is not them rehearsing the songs that they were taught and, you know, that rehearsal was recorded?
0: Yeah, you, you wouldn't know. It's you don't know. It's yeah.
1: It's right. That's what I say. Is it possible that that's what's going on? And then, you know, people, honest people have to will then reluctantly admit that, yes, that that is possible. Is it possible that what you're hearing is the Beatles singing to the pre-recorded tracks, the instrumentals that r- were recorded by studio musicians?
0: Yeah. Is yeah. that possible? Yeah, absolutely. Again,
1: people with honesty will say that's possible. See, this is why what this is why they did let it be. So the guy that's playing Paul McCartney today, I call him Billy Shears. I believe Billy knew that they didn't have that authenticated footage. Because when you think about it, we're told we that John Lennon and Paul McCartney were geniuses. Prolific genius songwriters, the greatest really in pop rock history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yet there is no film footage of them practicing their trade. Zero. Up until let it be. So I think what happened was Billy knew that there was a big gap in the story. Mm. I mean, we can could, we could tell you this stuff. We could write all kinds of articles and we could do documentaries and everything else. But there is no footage. And in fact, when Peter Jackson did his documentary, uh, the Get Back documentary, th- that was the tagline. It's, it's the it's the only footage that exists of the Beatles actually writing and recording in the studio. Was let it be. Was let it be. Right. So when we get to the and get back sessions,
0: when, that know. was when sorry to interrupt, that was when Billy Billy was on board, yeah. So Yeah, Billy so came Paul, on
1: board in nineteen sixty six formally. So at
0: this point, yeah. So so Paul's Paul's dead, and we'll get into that in the second hour and stuff. Yeah. So Paul's dead at this point. He's been replaced with Billy. Billy's actually now I want to ask you this. Billy's actually got some talent. Like he is a yes. songwriter. He's he, yes. he, yeah, so he's actually got some talent. So he took the reins. That's what you see. And when you see the Beatles in inverted commas, writing music or you know recording in the studio at this time, um, they've had their time to they've cut their teeth. They've learned how to play a bit more. They're, they're a little bit better now. They've, they've honed their skills a bit more now. Billy's in control, you know. And here we are. Look, look how awesome they are, you know.
1: But even in Let It Be, Lee and Andy, when you look at Let It Be, what did they accomplish? When they wanted to let it be, this was the objective, to write and record 14 new songs within two and a half weeks, do two concerts, and that would lead to a television special. When you watch the let it be footage, whether you're watching the original film or you're watching the Peter Jackson uh, version of it, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. In fact, what we have is a lot of footage of them, you know, goofing around, resorting back to a lot of cover music, you know, playing and stuff like that. Um, And then they get to the rooftop scene scene, and we hear basically five songs. On on a couple of them, they did a couple of takes. But basically five songs on a rooftop. I mean, that's not a concert. Who's going to see them on a rooftop? Mm. So what happened was they couldn't do it. So even with Billy at the helm, Billy who was formally trained and you know a very very good multi-instrumentalist, they couldn't pull it off. Now, so I when I did my presentation back in April of 2020 did the Beatles write all their own music to question whether they actually did write all their own music and I concluded that they did not. That made its way into the book. Okay, that made its way into the book and the book validated My conclusions, about three weeks ago, Billy was doing an interview. Billy again, folks, he's the guy playing the role of Paul McCarty, who you know as Paul McCarty, that's Billy Shears. Uh, I think it was on ABC television here in the United States. Part of that interview, he said that we bid off more than we can chew, that the, the objectives and the goals that we had for the Get Back sessions or the Let It Be sessions of 14 new songs, was impossible so here billy is telling us um uh that they couldn't do it so if, if they couldn't do it for let it be where now you know the band had um had seven years of studio uh experience sleeve, yeah. yeah under their belt right that's what we're told right if they couldn't do it in, in 1969, what makes anybody think that they could do it in 1963, 64, 65, 66, and so on? You see,
0: mm, mm.
1: so. Um, but the, the the elephant in the room, as far as the music goes, is Rubber Soul.
0: Yeah, so this is what I want to get into. So make sure we cover this in the,
2: yeah, in the first yeah. section
0: of the of the episode for the for the listeners. Um, get onto that one now. So Rubber Rubber Soul album comes out, which I showed the cover art of before. What what year was that again? 65. 65. So 1965. It's getting close to uh, the end, late, later end of the year, getting close to Christmas time. Where well, what do people do at Christmas time? Well, they go and buy gifts for people, don't they? They spend money. They go shopping. People want to go and buy gifts, so they, they didn't want to miss out on the good sales time of Christmas time of selling this Rubber Soul album around that time of year. Now, how did let's let's talk about how they accomplished this this mammoth feat in the timeframes within which it happened. Go ahead, Mike.
1: Okay, so what happens is they're doing their U.S. tour. And after the U.S. tour, um, they had a six week break. And this was, you know, them being on vacation or or holiday. And they had to be in the studio on October 11th. And they had to write from scratch, essentially from scratch. Sixteen new songs and have it completely wrapped up in 30 days to wrap up by November 11th of 1965. So October 11th of 65, folks, 30 days to November 11th, 16 new songs. That's 14 for the album, and then they did a uh, um, a single, a double A-side single, Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out. Those are the two songs for the single. And the official narrative tells us that they came into those sessions with essentially No backlog of music. So they had to write from scratch. And let me just see if I can find something here. Um, Because some people want to argue that, oh, no, well, you know, um, they, they had some music. Well, they really didn't. Okay, so the narrative tells us that they had partial or drafts of songs before the Rubber Soul sessions, which included some pieces of Michelle, some pieces of We Can Work It Out, and they had the song "Wait," which was had the basic rhythm tracks recorded from the Help sessions, which were earlier in the year in 1965. But here's the thing with "Wait," because some people want to argue with me that oh, you, know, you know, it wasn't 16 songs they had to write; it was 15. Like that really makes a difference. 15, 16 changes so everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, the thing is, "Wait" was pulled out of the hopper the way the official narrative explains it is it was pulled out once they realized that they were struggling for material. So in other words, Wait was not one of the songs that they were coming in with. They didn't say, hey, we already have this one, so there's only 15 more to write. No, they came into the studio saying, we've got 16 to write. And then as as the sessions became a bit challenging, that's when they, they pulled the song Wait out of the closet. Okay. So anyway, so what I try, I watched a, d- a documentary. Uh, Scott Fryman is the author. He does a great job. I mean, it's, it's the official narrative. His presentation is very good. But, you know, I've been songwriting for a long time, I, you know, recording and so on. And uh, I got 20 minutes into that documentary, that presentation, and I knew right away something was really off, way off. Because as soon as I heard 16 songs in 30 days, I said, there's no way. There's no way you can write 16 songs in 30 days. Now, when we talk about writing songs, it's not just writing them. Then you have to learn them. In other words, learning them means you have to teach the rest of the band the songs. You have to rehearse the songs. You're going, once you rehearse, you're going to change things. You're going to change arrangements. You're going to add bits and pieces and so on. Then you've got to record the songs. How many takes is it going to take to record the songs, the basic tracks? And then you've got to mix the songs down. So as an example, let me just give you an example of of the schedule uh, that is the official narrative. It says the Beatles arrived in the studio on October 11th of 1965. One day in, they recorded the song Run For Your Life. They showed up on October 11th, October 12th run for your life is in the bag. On October 13th, 2 days in, drive my car is in the bag. Done. On October 16th, 5 days in, day tripper is done. On October 18th, if I needed someone, 7 days in is completed. Now, how I mean The whole thing is like this. And on the last day, October 11th, the last day of recording,
0: they finished. That was the first day, wasn't it? October
1: 11th. October 11th was the first day. On November 11th. November 11th, sorry. November 11th. I'm sorry. On November 11th, on the last day, they finished four songs. You Won't See Me, Girl, Wait, which was a leftover from the help sessions. But they had to do the, the vocals and all that stuff. And then the song, I'm Looking Through You. So you have to ask yourself, how is this even possible? This this would be like saying the Beatles are a machine. They wrote, they write a song on the spot, on demand. It's in other words, there's there's no throwaways, there's no reworks, there's no rewrites. They didn't start yeah. a song and say, oh, this is not going to work. Okay, it's, let's it's move almost to like landing else. on
0: the moon first try, isn't it? You know,
1: exactly. <laughs> everything they t- exactly everything they touch turned to gold. And you got to say to yourself, how can that be? So this is a chart. I'll just read from it, Lee. We don't have to show it. So in the month of October, eight songs were recorded in 18 days with a total of 28 takes for all songs. So that means it was an average of three and a half takes per song. Not one song that they did in Rubber Soul exceeded five takes. How can that... How can that be possible? You're writing the songs from scratch. You're learning them, you're rehearsing them. So what's going on here? In November, eight songs were recorded in 13 days, five less days than in October. And they did that in 14 takes for an average of 1.8, to 1.8 takes per song. This is in the land of impossible, okay? It's, yeah. it's not even remotely
0: feasible. That's- I mean what people need to understand is that that is the same as you you're all in the booth, everything's ready, all it's all set up. They start playing on cue, the vocals are correct, everything is correct at the same time and it all marries up in one take. It doesn't happen. It can't happen that way. It, How does it can't that happen? happen. Every it can't every happen note that is way. perfect, every strum, every beat, everything's perfect in one take. it is it, it, it is impossible. It cannot happen that way. Even it's the best a- musicians these days will still Take multiple times to do a take yeah
1: yeah so they did 16 songs in 30 days with a with a total of 42 takes for all songs so um that's 2.6 I mean, did they per sleep? sleep
0: did they eat did they like how, well, here's how the thing. did they leave the building like what's going on there well here's the thing also he, this this is another
1: you know uh one of these anomalies during the um, Rubber Soul sessions, they actually—that's when they received their MBEs. So they stepped out of the studio. They also took a day out to do a Christmas flexi disc, and then they took two more days out because they had a TV special to do. So, so the so what happens is, see, Rubber Soul. Once you you dig into it, it it starts to come apart at the seams. Yeah, yeah.
0: R- so rubber happen- Soul is. Is the is the clue that gives it away that these guys weren't writing their songs, they weren't producing, they weren't the 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 be all and end all of best musicians and geniuses in the world. This is the this is the proof, right? This is the thing that brings it all and and tears it all apart, right? This is the proof, right?
1: That's right, and then I'll I'll get into it in a moment because that's not the only problem with Rubber Soul. See, that's the the first problem is the songwriting. It's the rehearsal. It's the recording. It's the mixing in in 30 days uh, you know I, I said no it can't happen but here's the other problem with rubber salt they cut the lacquer the final lacquer mono lacquer which is which is going to be used to press the actual records on november 17th and the records had to be in retail in the stores on december 3rd that's two and a half weeks well, <laughs> oh how, how how did
0: how did that happen Okay. Yeah. Maybe these days, maybe they could do it these days. You know what I mean? Even, I mean, you struggle to get business cards created for you in in, a, in two days, even in a week. You know, sometimes how can they cut thousands and thousands and thousands of records in that short amount of time? Yeah.
1: Well, the amount not of only time, not
0: only cut them. There's more to it than that. Go on.
1: <laughs> the cycle time back in the day to uh, to get a record out was um, eight weeks, eight to ten weeks. Let's say two months from the time that y- you conclude. Recording from the time that you, uh, yeah, you, you finish recording, and two months out is when you could expect to have the record out. Why is that? Well, because uh, record sleeves have to be created. Uh, the center labels for the vinyl have to be created. So, in other words, all the packaging has to be printed and and, and put together, so that when you print the re- when you press the records, you can them in the sleeves you can package them stage them get them ready for distribution and then get them out to the retail now in order to have the record sleeves printed and the the center labels printed you have to know the songs you have to know the songs the names of the songs because the names and that's the sequencing i'm going to get to that yes right exactly
0: here, sorry.
1: yeah so so Of course, everybody knows this, right? The names of the songs are on the back of the album and the names of the songs are on the center label that gets printed on, uh, excuse me, pressed on to the vinyl record, whether it be the 33 RPM record or the 45. The official narrative tells us that George Martin didn't finish the sequencing, the order of the songs, which songs in what order were going to be on side A, which songs in what order were going to be on side B until November 16th, the day before the lacquer was cut. Now, in order to do the sequencing, you have to know the run times. In other words, how long is the song? Is it two and a half minutes? Is it three minutes? And so on. So you have to have, you have, to have the run times. You have to, then once you have the run times, you could do the sequencing. Once you have the sequencing, then you could put the order in to have the record sleeves printed and the center labels printed as well. So if he didn't do the sequencing, he didn't finish it until... November 16th. Well, how did the records start to, how did the lacquer get cut on the 17th and the records begin to be uh, pressed? I'm assuming that had to be on the 17th as well, or maybe even the latest, the 18th, because they really had to get the first batch of records out to the retail outlets by December 3rd. How did that happen? I mean, did they just snap their finger and all of a sudden, all of this artwork, all of the printing, all of the labels, just fell from the ceiling into their laps, and then they were ready to go? Because the way the center labels work, folks, the way they get adhered to the vinyl is during the pressing process. It's not done afterwards, which means the center labels with the names of the songs had to be, had to be in-house, ready to go when they were starting to press the records. Now, what does that mean? That told me that all the stuff I just talked about, the printing of the record jackets, the the sleeves, the labels, all that stuff, had to have been uh, underway way before the Beatles ever showed up into the studio. Which means the names of the songs were already known, the runtimes were already known, the sequencing was already known, and... The only thing left for George Martin to do was to have the Beatles come in to the studio between October 11th and November 11th to sing, to sing. They they were there to to put down the vocal tracks. They did not play on the record. That's, That's what I concluded. Who played on the record, Mike? Studio players played on the record. George Martin, he, you know, he had. His studio session musicians.
0: Yeah, and, and this wasn't uh, that uncommon, either either? Was it like no, studio no. session musicians were a very common thing back then?
1: That's 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 the thing. That's the thing, Lee and, and Andy. This is a very important point that you're bringing up. When I talk about this, people think, "Oh, it's blasphemy." No, it's not. If we go back, I call it the wrecking crew model. Here in the United States, we had the wrecking crew. They were L.A. based. We had Muscle Shoals here on the East Coast, and These were studio musicians, studio players.
0: Um, Eric Clapton was a studio musician back in the day, wasn't he as well? Some of the best-known musicians. Yeah, Jimmy
1: Page, um, uh, John Paul Jones. Okay, so this studio players are the people that you're hearing on 98% of the records that came out in the 1960s and 1970s. It was the Wrecking Crew model. So in the in the states, you know, they had their studio players. In the UK, they had their version of the Wrecking Crew with people like Vic Flick, Big Jim Sullivan, and uh, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, and mm. these were the people that were putting the the songs down on tape. Because the way it works is, you know, George Martin, the songs were already written.
0: Yeah.
1: They, they were written by professional songwriters on the EMI slash Tavistock staff. Some want to argue that it was, it was solely Theodore Adorno. I, I don't subscribe to that. I believe Adorno uh, in all likelihood did write some of the music as well as George Martin. I have a clip of George Martin say that, saying that he wrote the guitar lead for Michelle, it was his composition. Those were his words. But I believe what they did was they had maybe five or six uh, studio, uh, excuse me, five or six songwriters that were dedicated to the Beatles' psychological operation to that initiative.
0: Yeah, yeah, it seems very plausible that's the case. Yeah, for sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. So so what they did was, you know, they wrote the music and then George Martin convened the studio players. He put the sheet music in front of them. Yep, yep.
2: They banged out the
1: songs, recorded all. So Beatles
2: now
1: they They sing. They sing to the pre-recorded tracks, just, to the instrumentals. Yeah,
0: they just sing, sing like karaoke to the instrumentals. Karaoke. Yep, it's the yep. monkeys. Put it down. Record that and pump it out. And they can. They, they could have theoretically. They could have just sung all those songs in in a day, almost, and recorded them in a day, and then punched it out and got them all done. You know.
1: Yeah, I think what happened was um, they, you know, they, the songs came with a uh, a guide vocal, so they had to learn the melody. Yep. Uh, in fact, I've got a clip of them trying to do uh, to get Think for Yourself down, which is credited to George Harrison. And that's on the Rubber Soul album. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, they they just had a very difficult time nailing the song. And I'm thinking to myself, why is George Harrison, especially George Harrison, having a hard time nailing the song down if he allegedly wrote it? I mean, typically, if you wrote the song, you have the melody, you know, the vocal, you've, you, you can sing the song you're not the problem okay mm-hmm. maybe the others have to learn the, the you know some their vocal parts and the harmonies and stuff like that but it was it, it, I mean it just it was in my mind proof positive that this is what this was what was going on yeah and um, you know and then again you know we go back to um, Billy uh, saying that hey you know we bit off more than we can chew with let it be again all right you guys are supposed to be genius songwriters.
0: Yeah. The, the greatest of all time yeah the greatest the of all
1: time and, and, yeah. and you're saying that you know you couldn't do the 14 songs for the get back sessions or let it be sessions so why should i believe that you could do it any other time before that yep. now
0: yeah now just um, to, just because we're going to wrap up the first portion of, of the yep. show, of the show for the listeners now before we continue on purely for the members so um just one more point before we do that so We've explained all this that the Beatles are this manufactured group that didn't write their own things. Things were done for them. It was all pumped out there. And just, just reiterate one more time. Like, why is that? Why was that important? What was that all about? Just to wrap that that finer point up there. Why did they do this? Why did they have to do this for this band? What 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 made that so important?
1: The Beatles were really the um, the first um, band, rock band. Um that was going to be foundational and set the stage for everything else that followed. The Beatles were important because the Beatles were really the first to uh, to uh, manipulate the masses into culture change, to social engineer. And as I mentioned before, it was everything. it was the look. It was uh, it was the uh, obviously the music. It was the drugs. It was uh, the whole psychedelic period. It was the free love. It was all of this. It was the anti-establishment.
0: Um, so now uh, why, okay, so we've established that. Now, just to wrap this final point up again, why did the, the controllers, the Tavistock, why did the people, the social engineers, why did they need to do this? Like, um, we, yes, we've established that they did do it. This is how they did it. They used the Beatles to do this, to control the narrative, all that sort of stuff. But why, why was it so important to them to do this? It goes back to Crowley's Aeon of Horus. Okay, so
1: they're occultists and they're, lo- they're looking at the, the current age, the, the age of Pisces, which we, I believe we transitioned out of officially on December 21st of 2012. The whole Mayan calendar bit. That it was, was the end really, of that era. It yeah, was the yeah. end of that at age, right. So they're moving to a new age and their new age, they. They want a population of literalists. They want a population of, of people that, that march along to their thinking, to their agenda, to their philosophy. That's what they want. That's why religion had to get out of the way. That's why Christianity had to be blown up. Yeah. because it was because in back the then,
0: way and people need to understand like this is my take on this is that you know back in say and in these these eons these ages last what roughly two thousand odd years or something Yeah, is, is the right um back then yeah, you know, they didn't have mass media like we do now so the, the way they controlled populaces back then was through religions and you know pushing and enforcing their religions and things and you know later on they they wrote down scriptures and things and it was all about yeah, that's how you control masses. You use the priest class to control larger groups of people, and those priest classes were basically in charge of populations and stuff. Fast forward, you know, two thousand odd years. How do you control the masses then? Yeah, you know, well, you, you know, they started to do it through Bibles, and yeah, you know, that was how they they used the Bibles to control the message of the Piscean agenda back then. And you know, um, but that age had to end. So how do you now do it again? You're at the end of the the age now. How do you control mass, massive amounts of population? Well, you do it through mass media, and mass media is is, is taken on board by the masses through things like radio, television, you know, newspapers, um, the written word, all that sort of stuff. But pop culture was was really starting to take its take its grounds back then. So that's they needed to control pop culture, and this is the one of the ways they did it. They did it via the Beatles, if I'm not mistaken, and that was how they pushed. This new change, this new this new age of Horus agenda onto the onto the mass uh, mass populations of the world was push it through through entertainment, you know, get it on board that way. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that is that a bit no, of a summation? No, you're,
1: you're absolutely right, Lee, and and, and you, you said something very very important. Pop culture.
0: Mm.
1: So that's what culture is all about today. There's no true culture. People no longer really relate to their roots their ancestry none of that
0: very interesting it's pop yeah.
1: culture it's mm. hamburgers it's netflix that's i mean here in the united states pretty much that's it uh, consumerism mm. that's mm. that's the pop culture and the reason why they want this folks is because it's it's easier to control a mindset that operates that way mm mm-hmm. mhm And make no mistake about it, when I say they're occultists, they are occultists. And where they're going, where they think they're going, is going to be a whole lot less people going with them. They don't want the masses trailing behind them. They don't want that. And so, I mean, they're looking at it as an eon or an age of enlightenment, but it's an age of enlightenment for them. That's right. Yeah. It's their version, of, their version of Illumination. It's not mm. your version of it. So, and, you know, the Beatles played a big, big part in this. And a lot of times people still have a lot of difficulty getting their heads wrapped around this. But the Beatles' the music was so good and everything else. The music was good. The music was great.
2: Yeah, it was. But it
0: was had,
1: but it, brilliant.
2: Yeah.
1: But it has an agenda behind it. That's what you have to
0: That's understand. Right. Yeah, well done. Nail on the head right there at the end of that segment, mate. I really appreciate that. It's exactly what it is. There was an agenda behind the Beatles. Um, Let's wrap up that first segment there. Uh, We will continue on with the show, of course, but um, for the majority of the listeners there, we are going to continue on. If you want to hear the rest of this show, please head over to patreon.com or buymeacoffee.com and you can hear the next exciting part of this this continuation of the Beatles conspiracy, we are going to delve into now. Um, the, Paul is dead, basically. We're going to try and switch gears into this part of the show: how they replace Paul, the symbolism behind it, um, new new information. I think that you've come uh, has come to light within the last uh, twelve months or so with regards to uh perhaps he was he actually only is he's blind in one eye I here is one of the new things too so and there's, there's a bit of proof to that as well with some information so it's really fascinating stuff i'm going to get into the whole billy shears thing the replacement of paul when did it happen when did he die how did it happen all that sort of stuff so if you want to hear more folks um jump on board you can hey just jump on board for one month if you want binge everything and then cancel i don't care but if you want to do it support support the show that way then by, your, by all means please do uh, for the rest of the listeners if you're not interested, then just head straight over to sageofquay.com. That's the hub website for all the information there from uh, Mike Williams here. Tons and tons of years of research and information, not just about um, the, the Beals and Paul and all that sort of stuff. He's, he delves into everything. It's really good. It's great stuff. Uh, another great researcher on, on our side of the fence, folks. So thanks again uh, to, to Mike for all that information there for the, for the main show listeners. And we'll continue on now for the rest of the show. Thanks.
2: When I find myself in times of trouble,